Hi, this is Joe Hashem for Uncommon. Uncommon is a production by Neural, a full-service digital agency. If you want to grow with a premium agency and have the ability to work with Jordan directly, then learn more at neural.com slash media and request a callback. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash media. My name's Jordan Michaelides and I'm the host of Uncommon, a show that digs deep with unique individuals. If you like the episode, leave us a written review on your podcast app as it helps us to continue what we do on a weekly basis. Show notes are below in your app. Otherwise, for all previous guests, you can find them at neural.com slash podcast. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash podcast. To watch the full video, just search Uncommon Show on YouTube to find our channel. Or if you want to keep up to date on social media, you can find us at uncommon underscore show on Instagram. With that being said, let's get into the episode. My guest this week is Joe Hashem, winner of the 2005 World Series of Poker, uh, winner of the 2006 World Poker Tour, father to our previous guest, Daniel Hashem, and the all-time Australian leader when it comes to winnings. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Jordan. Now, I was thinking about um, openers, interesting little lines that I noticed in your some of your interviews. I love this one in particular, um, that it's never the dealer's fault, which is quite interesting. But I, I was thinking, as I said earlier, growing up with uh, Shane and watching him do a lot of these charity poker events, has there been a particular uh, celebrity that you found most challenging to play against in poker? A celebrity that I found most challenging to play against. Who surprised um, you the most? It's kind of like a, a difficult question to answer, really, to be honest, because let's talk about Shane. Hmm. Shane is an athlete. He's a champion in his own right, in his own field. So anybody who's a champion in their own field obviously is a very competitive person. Hmm. And Shane, we all know how competitive <laughs> he is, right? <clears throat> so when he brings that competitiveness and that natural instinct to poker, he usually outshines just your regular garden variety celebrity. Mm. So there's, you know, there's the there's the athlete, okay, and then there's the celebrity who just wants to play poker because it's cool. Yeah, mm. they're there for the event. Yeah, yeah. So it's two different things. Um, so you found, if you assess it logically, that most people who are athletes that take an interest in it. Get into it quite seriously. Yeah, they don't want to lose. (laughs) Whereas just a a garden variety celebrity will just be having some fun and passing some time. Mm, That's very interesting. Do you guys? Because I I saw that that the Hashem Group does poker with the stars. Um, What other events are you guys doing around that sort of stuff? Is it still quite prominent? A lot of these charity events. So that's my brother Tony's gig. Yeah. He does that and I, I show up and support him. Mm. He, it's called the Hashem Group, but it's his gig. Yeah. Um, and he's done, like for 10 years now, he's done great work. I don't, don't even know the number of how many millions of dollars has been raised through these events. But he does uh, Poker with the Stars and All In for Poker. They're the two main, mm. All In for Charity, they're, they're the two main things that he does. And he does other like small events for corporate clients and stuff. But basically it's, you know, he worked out early that um, both athletes, celebrities, and also just regular people want to be involved in an entertaining night where they can play against some of their heroes Mm. and raise some money for charity. And um, that's going really strong. I think his uh, next All In For Charity is in May this year. Yeah, I, I just remember the Poker with the Stars is definitely a, it is such a notable event here in Australia. Mm. I mean, if you mention it to most people, they'll know what it is. Yeah, it's, it's been 
been doing it for like almost 10 years now, like I said, and always gets really good coverage mm. and gets some big names to show up to, to help support. So Shane's been a great yeah. supporter of this for so many years now, from day one. Well, him and I basically started with the Shane Warne Foundation doing a charity poker night. That's how right. this all started. Then when we then when we stopped doing that, Tony took over and made it his own thing. Thing and and uh, he he went with it. So and we just show up and support him now. Speaking of your brother, um, I was thinking about your childhood. Actually, before you were coming round, I was looking at because um, you were born the same year as my dad, so he's from Cyprus. Yeah, he was actually telling me that um, when I was interviewing you that he remembers when he went back to Cyprus in '77 and they could actually hear the artillery shells in Lebanon. Mm. Um, but I was trying to like think about, you know, obviously you grew up there, you came over at about six. Um, what, do you remember why your family came here in particular? Because mm. the, the civil war hadn't happened yet. Basically, um, my grandparents passed away in Lebanon. Okay. Yeah. Which part of Lebanon are you from? We're from the north, okay. the Cedars. Yeah. Um, and my mum's family were mostly out here. Oh, right. Okay, already. So it was a natural thing to come out and join the family. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, three years before the war yeah. even started. So, I mean, what a lucky break that was. Because Fairly. I'll tell you right now, from, the, from where we're from in Lebanon, my brothers and I would most likely either be dead or in some sort of trouble yeah. because of the war, sure. Yeah. Dead, dead, dead or heroes, or, or dead heroes. One of the, yeah. one of the dead yeah. martyrs yeah. or dead so, martyrs. Some, some, some nonsense like that. It was just a, such a blessing. Yeah, I, I'm forever thankful that my grandparents decided to, to immigrate out. Yeah. I mean, just think about it. Like, I think about it sometimes. All I had to do was say, uh, or, or my, parents had, my grandparents had to live another three years. Then no one's getting out. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? That's like, a good point, yeah. Do you, a, do you have any particular early memories? Like, what's your, what's your early memory, earliest memory of your childhood? Um, my grandfather carrying me on his shoulders, um, going to the beach in Beirut. Yeah, just, you know, you just get pictures. Yeah. And sometimes, believe it or not, it's more certain smells activate a memory. Mm. Like, I'll smell something like a food or a sweet. I'll go, oh, I remember that. And then something in my subconscious takes me back to Lebanon. <laughs> That's crazy. Do you think that hummus is Greek, Lebanese, Turkish, or Israeli? <laughs> I know who makes it the best. Yeah? Who? We do, of course. <laughs> Lebanese, of course. It's, it's not even a question. It's not even a question. But, you know... I think that whole Mediterranean uh, section, we all own it. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that um, the Turks had a lot to do with that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Because they, you know, governed the whole area for 500 years, so. Yeah. Yeah, if you think about, like, I actually did this DNA test recently and it shows, Dad did it as well, and it shows, like, your your family background of, like, for me, I've got, like, 6%... Uh, Iranian and he's got this about roughly the same amount but it's like Georgian it just shows you how intermingled people were in that part of the world Um, I just always find that a funny question because all of my friends who are either Turkish Lebanese Greek or whatever claim that it's it's their thing well how can it be our thing because everyone in the region does it like and no one no one definitively knows where it started Mm. All I know for sure is that we make it the best. <laughs> you guys can have the rest of it, whatever you want. Um, you mentioned before about your grandfather, mm. and I'm thinking about your parents as well. Were, were there lessons that you remember as a kid that you took on with you even to today, like principles or something that you saw directly or indirectly at all? I don't really have too many memories from childhood, like from this, from Lebanon. Mm. Um, but my, more, more my, so about your childhood. Yeah, my childhood, the, um, a lot of who I am today came from my childhood. I was the eldest of all my siblings and cousins, so I carried the older brother responsibility 
from the very earliest of age. I mean, I was babysitting 10 kids when I was 10 years old. Mm. Whilst the, the parents were out at a party. That was back then, that's, you know. Standard. Just how, how it was, you know, no, you don't think about it. Now, today, you would never dream about doing that, but yeah. back then it was, that's how it was, so. But um, my uncle Vince, who passed away uh, almost 10 years ago now, I think 10 years ago now he's passed away. He was really my um, role model for how to, how to be a man, you know. Um, Why is your, that? Your word is your bond. Yeah. Uh, generosity, honesty and integrity. Um, and I used to spend a lot of time with him, you know, as you do when you're close to your uncle, you're kind of like, he's your best mate. We were only like 15 years apart, so he wasn't a whole generation older than me. Mm. So from the age of like 13, even younger, 11, till the time I got married, I was his like shadow. And, uh, I just watched how he operated and how he dealt with people, how he spoke to people. So how, you saw it indirectly. Yeah, he, it was, and I think the best lessons that you learn aren't lessons that you're told about, it's lessons that you witness. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, um, I, I quite, often, quite often get asked by people like, you know, because I know I've raised four kids and I go, so what's your advice? And I say, you know, don't give them the do as I say, not as I do thing. Just kids aren't stupid if you, you know, yeah. you know don't be a hypocrite. Actions, not words. Yeah, yeah I, th I think I'd say the same thing. I, I remember being very fond of my uncle as a, as a kid and I got a sense of, because um, they're all printers, but my uncle was more in, on sort of the design side and always got a real sense of craftsmanship from him and appreciating the, the small things. But from my dad, it was, um, it was like hard work because he would just always be working or always be in the factory, so to speak. Right. Um, I, I, li I like those sort of things because I feel like they often define us later on in life as to who we become. 100%. Totally yeah. agree. I think what, what you experience as a child, you know, especially between the ages of 7 and 15, you know, because up until 7, I think... Up until seven is where your character comes from. Mm. And then seven to 15, those experiences kind of shape who you become as an adult. Right. Do you know? Um, so they often define your key areas of interest and, and who you... And what you think is important in life too. You know? Yeah. That's interesting. I'm not a psychologist. It's just my evaluation after raising four kids and being a kid myself once upon a time. Well, I want to get into your perceptions on psychology, but before we get into that, another field of medicine, chiropractic. Um, I know that you worked in that area for 13 years and then you had to give up that career because you had a condition in your hands. Mm -hmm. What was the condition? It's called erythromyalgia, but now I believe it's just, they just made up some bullshit right. term just to shut me up because I couldn't work out what was wrong. It's not arthritic. I still have it. Yeah. It comes and goes. It's it's kind of like I can't really use my fingers. I can use my hands, mm -hmm. but if I use my fingers, which you need to do a lot, a lot in chiropractic, my uh, the pain starts straight away. And So it's pain, not yeah. numbness or anything? No, like no. And it's, their description was that the blood vessels in my hands and feet are, for whatever reason, already dilated. And when I start to use them, they dilate further and it causes stretching of the blood vessel, which causes the pain. So uh -huh. I, I, on a regular basis, have quite warm hands. Like my hands are warm even, you know. But the funny thing is, in cold weather, my hands are colder than others. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't care. I've had it for like over 20 years now and yeah. nothing's changed. So Walk us through your mindset, though, when they were telling you this stuff. What were you thinking? Oh. Well, what happened was I, in 2000, I started feeling the symptoms, right? Mm. And I continued working for another year and then I finally went to see some specialists and they took me through the whole lot, the whole gambit of um, MRIs, blood tests, and they just scratched their head and eventually they came up with this thing. And, and in the meantime, I'm thinking, well, you know, I've been building up my practice and my reputation over 13 years and 
looks like I'm, I'm done. Mm. What am I going to do? But what's funny is at the same time, I was playing more poker. And online poker just came onto the scene. Uh-huh. Um, things happen for a reason, dude, you know? Like yeah. I just started playing more poker. And uh, I, I think I went through depression for a year. Really? Well, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Like my sort, my personality. I don't think I'm, I'm normal in the way because I compartmentalise things very well, maybe too well. So it always seems like I just don't give a shit. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, I just get on with it. Like nothing really gets me too much. Yeah. And um, I'm pretty sure that at some point for that that 12 months in 2001 that I was feeling pretty down myself, but I never stewed about it, you know, just yeah. just kept on going. Do you, so, do you think that was because you were worried about the implications for you and the family or were you just thinking like, fuck, like how am I going to make money? Well, I think it was a multitude of things. Yeah. I have four, four young kids, a mortgage. Yeah. And my career that I spent, you know, five and a half years studying, 13 years practicing gone yeah what next did, did you ever think that maybe you could just get someone else to run the show keep it going you can but you're just wasting your time because by the time you pay them and they're not going to take care of your well no that's not true but your your patients have a connection with you mm. just naturally you'll they will lose patience but I don't think it's a very very profitable scenario to yeah. have people working for you. There's it, not much left on the table after you pay them because you've got to pay them top dollar. Yeah, and the responsibility that comes with it, right? Because it's still your practice, you're still paying the bills and all that sort of stuff, so. Mm. It just makes things very, very tough. Mm. Um, the in-between years. So this is before Joe wins World Series of Poker. This is you as a mortgage broker you're thinking about your future, you're picking up the time you're spending on poker. Mm. Why mortgage broking? How did, that, how did that come to you? I wanted to go back to uni and study law. Okay. But I realised that I don't really have enough time for that. I've got four young kids that need to be fed. And uh, I've always liked property, not like finance, so mortgage broking was kind of like a natural thing. Yeah. Um, you felt that maybe you were probably extroverted? sales type I was wrong I'm not an extrovert I'm an introvert really or ambiverted actually I don't know that term is Am that a ambiverted both, is, is a bit of both yeah I'm probably a bit of both do like do you find that when you're at events are you quite exhausted afterwards but you still like going to them no like you don't <laughs> that's interesting because yeah that would that would make you an introvert for sure I'm yeah I, I'm after reading the and understanding the interpretation of introvert, I'm an introvert. I always thought I was an extrovert. Yeah. But I'm not. Because I get totally drained from social events. Like yeah. like literally the energy, the life gets sucked out of my body. Yeah. Like after this interview I will be very tired. But mm. I do really like I still like going to it. So that would make mm. me an ambivert. I'm better if it's small group or one-on-one, -on -one, but okay. in a large group, no. Yeah. I just can't, I can't do small talk, basically. I'm horrible. And when I try and do small talk so I'm not rude, I come off like a dickhead. Like, I, it's so obvious that I'm just trying too hard. What's what's your, the one small talk topic that you just absolutely hate that people get in? Because you must get spotted a crown regularly, right? Dude, if I have one more person ask me, what did it feel like? to win. I just want to fucking choke them, seriously. <laughs> For fuck's sake. Like, dude, like, especially if an interviewer asks me that question. Yeah, yeah. Like, are you serious, dude? Like, 15 years later, that's what you're going to ask me now? Well, that's the thing that I had here is like, um, you know, winning the World Series of Poker. I think I counted in every single interview, everyone asks you the question, how has life changed? But I guess I was intrigued. How did life not change? What didn't change? What didn't change? 
Which is a good question. Okay. So here's a story. Okay. April 2005. Sitting, I just built a pergola at, uh, at my home in Preston. Mm-hmm. And I was so proud of it. It was amazing. Not that I built it, but I had it built, right? I was so proud. It was amazing. This like three meter, you know, white pergola. We could sit in the backyard and be protected. And we had couches out there and stuff. It was amazing. I'm sitting there with some friends and some family and um, maybe four or five of us. And just around that time, my best friend, um, his family had started becoming very successful and it changed him. He started hanging around with someone who was a bad seed and it changed him Mm. and it got to his head. And I was really like upset about it because it changed our relationship. And we were, we've been best friends for life. Even till today, I would take a bullet for him, even though we, we don't see each other anymore. Wow. Right. So, and I said, I turned around and said to my friends, to my, to my uh, friends and my wife was sitting there, I said, you know what, and I was, I'd had a couple of scotches, so it was probably the emotions coming out. And I said, you know what? And without, we weren't even talking about this subject at all, right? I just came out and blurted this out and I said, you know what, if I was to come into money tomorrow, what would change? I'd still be drinking Johnny Black, which, which is my drink. I don't like champagne. I'm happily married, I've got beautiful kids. What would change? Okay, I'd be debt free and I'd be able to maybe do other things, but my life at the core level would stay the same. Mm. And that's exactly what happened three yeah. months later. <laughs> it was insane. Three months later, I win the World Series. And what didn't change? Almost everything didn't change. Mm. What did change? How people in their own mind that knew me interpreted my victory towards them. Mm. So then, so now it became like, oh yeah, he's won that now, he's going to be stuck up. Like, dude, you've known me your whole life. Like, you know, and you speak to anybody who knows me today, they go, you. Joe hasn't changed at all. He's just still the same person. Yeah, people's expectations yeah. would have changed. A lot. Well, the, the, like, I'm, I'm guessing how many, like, when you first came back and you're going out for dinner for the first time with friends, how many people were probably looking at you like, oh, you're not paying? No, I don't have that, that sort of happen? friendship group, no. Okay. My, That's a good thing, obviously. No, no. My, my, my friendship group is 90% my family, like extended family. The one thing that protected me is I've always been, it's always been hard for you to get in as my friend. Mm. I'm very sociable and I'll speak to you and I'll, I'll make you feel comfortable and whatever, but you're not getting in, buddy. <laughs> you know, it takes anybody that wants to become my friend three years yeah, on average. And I only noticed that because one day I, I realised, well, I, gee, I like him. I think, yeah, I think he's a good guy. And then I realised... He'd been courting me for three years, basically. Like, what <laughs> uh, wasn't a conscious thing, right? It's just my natural instinct to protect myself. Um, mm. And I think I, I learned a big life lesson when I was a kid, when I was like 16 years old, and that changed me. Why, why was that at 16? So, when I was 16, um, we had another family that okay. were, were best friends with us, right? And they had two boys. And every weekend, we would be at their house or at our house. This is 37 years ago, right? So it's a long time ago, right? Okay. Think about it, right? We, did, we had no telephone at home. Yeah. We were, we were too poor to have a telephone. Um, we would either go to their house or our house. And then I remember one specific time on the Saturday we were at their house and we'd agreed to go somewhere the next day and meet somewhere, because we had no way to communicate. We're gonna meet here at this time. And um, the next morning I get up and my mum says to me, right, get in the car, we're going to Phillip Island with your uncles. I go, but mum, get in the car, we're going to Phillip Island with, with your uncles. I'm like 15, 16. And my life stopped basically in my mind. I go, I've got to tell these guys I'm not gonna be there. I lost my mind. How am I, I don't have a phone. I'm, I like, even when I talk about it today, and I've told this story a thousand times to people, right? 
And I know this, I know this affected my life a lot. So I jump in the car, we're off to Phillip Island for the, for the day. As soon as they stopped to get petrol, I jump out of the car and bolt to the phone booth to call these guys up and say, listen, hello, hello, hey, listen, I'm not gonna be able to make it today. I'm not, I'll make it where? You know, oh, 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 okay. Do you know how shattered I was, dude? <laughs> so you, you had built it up as this really big thing. Because I'd given my word that I was gonna be there. Yeah. I, you know, part, I think part of my personality is I hate letting people down, I hate let, letting anyone down. And that shattered me. But you hate being let down more. That's why you don't get in. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm the sort of person that, if you let me down as a friend, I blame myself for letting you in. Mm. I don't blame you for being a dickhead. It's, it's your fault. For letting you in. Do you know, you, you said something in an interview with um, Joe Ingram and you're talking about how, um, you know, basically you, you had changed a lot in that year. It was 2018 when you did the interview and it was about how basically you decided that you would no longer give people advice unless they actually wanted it. And I wouldn't argue with people. Yeah, and you would, <laughs> and you try not to tell people they were wrong unless they were speaking to you directly. It was in a conversation, yeah. which I found super interesting. Um, and I get it because I've all, I know that I've had that need as well. Like I, I like to be right, if that makes sense. Even though I'm not in a conversation, which is a bad trait, and I've had it's mellowed over time, and I've gotten better at it and learned to become more. Do you like to be right, or do you like to? I want to be right and I like, want to be liked. Yeah. So I found that I think I'm feeding my own ego by correcting you. Mm. Like, what the fuck does that have to do with me, dude? Just shut up, sit here quietly and do his own thing, right? Yeah. You know, if, unless it's directly that, you know, coming at me, then if you think the moon is green, good luck to you. Like, why is it my business to correct you? Yeah. That's a part about, uh, part of growing up too. My mum was like that. Yeah. My mum was like, she, she would correct everybody. And, and you know what? It takes so much energy, dude. Like, yeah. my life became so much easier. I'm so much happier. Once I realised that, hey, I'm not the police. You know, <laughs> they, can, they can believe whatever they want. I agree. And it, yeah, I, I, I've definitely always had it and it's, ma it's definitely mellowed over mm. time. I, I don't do it as bad as, as now. And I found that a really interesting observation. I also noticed that I'll often seek my dad's approval um, around things that I'm doing in my life. Like, um, that's natural though. Yeah. But like it sort of permeates to other people's, I want to prove that I'm doing something, if that makes sense, that I'm successful in my own right. Uh, but I have to tell them it's bad. Like I find myself, if something good happens in the business that we have, I feel this immediate need to tell certain people that I, that mm. I look up to, which I, it's, it's really hard to battle. Yeah. I guess I was curious if you had anything like that. No, no. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I generally don't give a shit what people think, yeah. but it's just what it, I don't know what it is. It's same with my old man. It's funny. Um, the person in my life that I try and please the most is my wife. Yeah. I want to be her hero always. You know, it's uh, and whenever we fight. I can't say that. Well, you're the only one I'm trying to please. Like, <laughs> why the fuck are we fighting, dude? <laughs> you know? What's the? What? You know, it's it's crazy. I find with fighting, it's quite funny. I always say, like, if it's a ridiculous fight, let's just walk away for 15 minutes. Mm. One of us can go for a walk around the block, and then you come back and realize that the fight was just completely ridiculous. That's I've, easier easier said than done. You know. Like, I know it is in the moment, but I've built, I've built a skill. It's good. To do that. It's great that you can do that. Yeah, it's fucking hard. You know, I, I, try, actually... I try and walk away. She goes, "What? You're not going to speak to me now? Come on!" <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm lucky. My partner, she's not Greek. She's not. She's got like a sort of English, Eastern European background, but she's not. She doesn't have that. That fire. I mean, she's got. She's an only child. Like she doesn't have. If 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 it was anyone who was like my sister or any of my cousins, it would be horrendous. Yeah. It would. 
I can actually see it now of my cousin and her partner. Like, he, she is onto him. So, <laughs> um, Lauren and I are getting married in October. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, you guys have been together for, I think it was 30 years in 2018. So 2019. 2019? We just, yeah. So when's the anniversary? 8th of October. Okay, so it's coming up in October. Um, what have you learned of yourself or of life being married? That you don't have to be, you don't have to be right yeah. to be happy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It doesn't like, again, those lessons that I learned about myself as well. I learned a lot of those from being married as well. Like mm. as a young man in my marriage, no, nah, I'm right, put my foot down and I'm going to be, what does it matter at the end of the day if it's just trivial nonsense? Mm. If it's serious stuff, then of course, but other than that, you find much more happiness by just letting things go yeah. and moving on to the next thing. What about parenting? Were you the type that thought, mm, like you were just sort of, you had no real opinion on kids until you had them? I don't know. I, parenting came very natural to me. Mm. I guess like, if you're looking for after 10 kids. Yeah, it came very natural for me. It was like, I just knew all this stuff that no one else knew. Just naturally. And I, I see it today, I look around like, and, and my kids, even when they were young, they'd, look, they'd say to me, Dad, if they were your kids, we know what you'd do, right? <laughs> 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 um, yeah, and it's and parenting still comes very natural to me. Communicating with, communicating with your children, um, has to change as they get older. How you communicate with them. Yeah, I'd agree with that. You go from authoritarian to um, to friend to advisor. Yeah, do you know what I'm saying? Like it's just, and with every relationship you have there has to be lines drawn in the sand. Doesn't matter who it's with, whether it's your father, your mother, your, your wife, or, and especially your children, mm. there always has to be a line in the sand where that's the line where me as a friend and me as a father meet. What's the line for you? It's, you can't put words to it. it. It's just a line that, okay, you've crossed the line now, you can't cross that line because now you're entering father territory mm. and be careful. <laughs> Right? As a friend, let's hang out and chill. But if I have my father hat on, then don't cross that line. Yeah. I, I won't accept it. I like that. Um, I want to jump back to, to poker. Mm -hmm. We are talking before about what didn't change. I found it interesting reading up. I mean, everyone's heard the stories of how you were playing in cash tournaments leading up to this. Mm. You played that tournament a few weeks before. Uh, the World Series of Poker. Um, a lot of people say that, and I think even Dan said it in the interview. There's there's luck. I mean, he says he says it probably because people ask him like, "Are you going to be like your dad?" And he says, "Well, there there's an element of luck and and probability of you having that moment. You know, the the fact that um, I think in that actual hand that you won, if he had a pulled out a if if there had been a seven on the river or something like that, then you wouldn't you may not have been in the situation that you'd been in. Um, there's this entire thesis in poker where you follow a system, so to speak, that gives you a a better chance for what you and he say of going with your gut in the right moments. So I guess I'm curious as to how do you think about strategy within a game or your principles to playing poker. Look, poker, you know, I've spoken about this a lot. Poker mimics life so much, you know, business, life, whatever relationships, because you need to do the hard work to understand the fundamentals, to understand the odds, to understand the cards. But then there's that element of luck that still needs to go your way. Mm. You look around anywhere in the world in business or in life, you tell me where luck's not involved. Yeah. Even in tennis and golf, where probably the most skillful 
individual sports that we know of, right? Sometimes his ball hits the fairway and takes a bad bounce right. Yeah. And now he's stuck in the lip of a bunker, right? Sometimes it bounces left out of the bunker and now he's in the middle of the fairway. Poker's the same, you know? The chances of it happening are small, but there's still a chance. When I have, when I have you locked up and you only have 2.5% to beat me, you still have 2.5%. And you know yeah. what? Sometimes it happens. It's, it does. Sometimes it And does. sometimes it happens the other way. Like in, um, you spoke about, spoke about my five diamond, my WPT victory. Mm. There, was a, there was a moment halfway through that final table when we were playing where I was, I had ace queen and the other guy had queen. I had queens and the other guy had ace queen, right? And when I had him all in and, and I, I had a few chips left and the flop came small and the ace came on the turn. Mm-hmm. And he had ace queen and I've got queens. There's only one queen left in the deck. There's only, I only had two and a half percent, right? If I don't, like he, he got really lucky to hit his ace. He got super lucky to hit his ace. If I don't hit that queen on the river, then I've got no chips left and I'm probably going to be out next. And the commentator, I specifically remember he said, he goes, Joe needs any queen of diamonds. There's only one queen of diamonds in the deck, right? <laughs> what a so, comment. So he's being a smart ass <laughs> and boom, the queen of diamonds rolls off. No shit. And that changed my fate yeah. for that second victory. So, and then I've had other situations where at very critical times in tournaments where I've got people dead to rights. And they've pulled it out of their ass. Yeah. And the same thing happens in, in business, dude. Yeah, I mean, look. The same thing happens in life. It's very, you know, it's You could ask my dad this question and he would say the bounce in the 2010 grand final for St Kilda, the one we should have won. Same thing in 2009, he talks about like the, the Gab, Gary Ablett or Matthew Scarlett toe poke. You see? He's like, oh, St Kilda, we're just unlucky. But I don't know, I, I, I agree with what you, I 100% agree with what you're saying, but I do think as well that there's an element to a mindset or a system that gets you to a place where you can't even be in that moment. Of course, yeah. yes, yeah, up until that moment. Yeah. Yeah, you need to you need to have the right mindset, the right strategy, uh, the right ability, and the knowledge to get there. Mm. And that's I've always said this. I say, you know, as long as I'm tapping on the window regularly, I'll get my my time eventually. You know, and sometimes it can be years. You know, you just constantly you're outside tapping, and no one's letting you in. Mm. But you're there tapping at least. Yeah, yeah. Where other people are playing in the, in the yard. There's an interesting book. Um, I don't actually know how much you were an author on this, but it was uh, The Flop Turn River, a hand-by-hand analysis of no limit hold'em tournament poker strategies. Yep. Just bought that on Amazon. There's also the Pass the Sugar book, but I know that that's more biographical. Mm. So if people like this interview, they should definitely go consider Pass the Sugar. Yep. Um, a lot of good reviews on that. Um, how do you think about risk management, though? Because this is the thing, this is the number one thing that all people ask. Risk management. Like I know that Daniel spoke about this in the interview, and I, I can see that he's he's gotten this lesson from you. Is is that the game of poker, in, in a way, is building or accruing your chips slowly, slowly, slowly. So when you have those moments when you need to go with your gut, you can pull it off. Mm. Um, but I guess. People want to hear it from you, right? Well, I think sound financial strategy, you know, relates across every aspect of life, whether it's, you know, poker, business or just life. Um, In poker, what people do a lot is they don't manage their bankroll correctly. And I have $1,000 and that's all I have for poker. I should never be... Um, exposing more than 5% of that $1,000 at a time. Mm. Because you can go for streaks and lose. I'm, I'm currently on a downswing and I, in one game that I'm playing, 
I've had like eight or nine consecutive losses. Yeah. That I'm the big winner in the game. But it happens. But I try and keep my losses to a minimum. Yeah. Well, do you know what really shows that is there was a video I saw with a guy named Tim Ferriss. He's got a similar interview show and he did a show on TV called The Tim Ferriss Show. I cannot for the life of me remember who the... Po- the It was a guy who won the World Series of Poker. So it wasn't Phil Helmuth. He's interviewed him. But he did a lesson with this guy that had to teach him in two days how to compete in a tournament. And the first lesson they did was they gave him a hand, so two cards, mm. and then they did the flop with the deck like twice over and 65% of the time he didn't have shit. You only connect with the flop 30% of times. Yeah. And so that to me really, to stats. that really emphasizes to me that mindset of you need to use that, that 5% bet at a time very carefully mm. and only when you're, you've got an opportunity. I agree. You mentioned that perseverance is one of the things that poker's taught you. Is there a non-poker moment where that has really helped you in your life? Study when I was studying to be a chiropractor. Uh-huh. Wow. We, you know, back, they crammed a six-year course into five years back then Jeez. because of the funding. And um, I remember the night before my uh, neuroanatomy exam, or the weekend before, the Saturday, I think the exam was on the Monday, I was sitting at my desk and I was just in tears because I could not understand what the F was going on like. And it just, just perseverance, you know, like, you know, just working through it, working through it, believing that, you know, if I did the right things, you know, I'll get rewarded. Mm. Um, but my whole life has been about perseverance. Yeah, I was going to say, like, do you think poker really taught you that or do you think you were built that up through your own nurture and nature and that poker aligns with that well? 100%. I think that's where my life helped my poker. Yeah. As I said, I was the, the eldest. I was like the the poster child for my family because I was always studying, working, whatever. And that was just hard work constantly, you know, mm. constantly growing up. And to, to be honest, I didn't get a childhood. I was, and that's why, you know, people always think I'm so serious. I can't help it. It's, it's, <laughs> I never had a chance to be, you know, a kid. I, I always had too much responsibility. Yeah. You know, fortunately for me, it hasn't backfired and I haven't, like, lost my marbles and decided to... I had a midlife yeah, crisis. Yeah. <laughs> bought bought um, ridiculous car and spent it all on coke. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did the first one, but not the second one. Yeah. What are you driving these days? Bentley. Bentley. Not a Tesla guy? No. I, my wife loves the Bentley, so we've got the Bentley. Um. I'm curious about your legacy in the game. I think one of the things you're most proud of is being an ambassador, your role with poker stars, what you did for the game here in Australia. And I think I said in Dan's interview, there's two people I think that are synonymous with poker here in Australia. It's you and Shane Bourne, at least here in Victoria. Mm. I feel like that they, you two have, uh, particularly yourself, have, have made it, particularly for my generation of guys, Every guy that I speak to knows Joe Hashem and, and Shane Warne and their poker. What do you want your legacy to be? My poker legacy is all about how I've positively impacted the game. Mm. Spread the good word and hopefully just help people enjoy the game. You know, like I, I spend a lot of time educating people on how not to gamble. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not a gambler. Yeah. I don't gamble outside. You know, poker is really what I play, and I only play poker because I think I have a, I have a, an edge. Otherwise, I wouldn't play. Mm. Um, unfortunately, poker is played in casinos. Yeah. People that are gamblers are drawn to poker and vice versa. And... If anything, I'd, I'd just like to just reinforce that, you know, why would you run a 100-metre race with me and give me a 5-metre head start if we're of the same ability? Why would you ever do that? Whenever you're gambling, it's exactly what you're doing. Yeah. So the, my legacy revolves around 
representing poker as a game of skill and a game of fun and, you know, getting people together. And it doesn't have to be about big money. It's about the entertainment, the, the challenge of beating your friends or your, you know, opponents. You mentioned in prior interviews about how <clears throat> the... The, the oftentimes now the the winner of the World Series of Poker, the main event, will just sort of go, they, they don't become ambassadors as much. And you also mentioned another view about, another interview about how in Australia we have this sort of weird fascination with the horses and, and betting on AFL and so on. So guys that would normally be playing poker in America are on the horses and the AFL, where they're, where they're guaranteed basically to lose their money. I know because I've had friends that do it regularly. I can't fucking stand it. Um, what We've gone through this poker boom. What do you think will be the second wave of poker in Australia? What do you think would change people's perception? That's a really good and tough question because unfortunately, because of the people that are attracted to poker and, and today the people that are actually good at poker they're not just regular people, they're just robots mm. who are only in it because they see an edge. There's no enjoyment, there's no social aspect of it. Um, and that hurts poker's image. I've been trying for over 10 years to try and like lift poker, you know, into the corporate world, which my brother told Tony's doing a really good job, job of, but still, it's uh, it's hard, mate. It's really hard. Like, I think online poker returning to Australia legally will help. Yeah. I don't see that that's too far away. I think it's closer than, fur than further at the moment. Um, but I'd love to be able to elevate poker to the professional level where there's, and pe many people have tried. I'll tell you the, the biggest thing that poker has against itself is poker players. And let me explain this is, unfortunately, because poker is a, you know, a sport, a game that's so individualistic, it's all about me, it's all about what I can get out of it. The people that attract are those people. So then when you talk about being part of a community, they're only in there, but they're looking at what's in it for me. I've, I've come across this so many times over the last 15 years, mm. trying to talk sense to people of the same level as me, same caliber as me, to get together and to do something better for the game yeah. always fails. Is that mainly in places like America? Because I, I had a sense that you have more of an egalitarian approach because here in Australia, people who often play sport, let's say like AFL, consider themselves custodians of the game. Mm. They, they view themselves as someone who should be furthering uh, the game for their group of stakeholders, whether it's players, coaches, whatever mm. it may be. Do you think that is what it is? I don't know. Like most of my dealings has been with Americans, obviously. Mm. Um, but there's been so many situations where I've just tried to get like, hey, let's get together and let's make a stance about this. And then turn my back and someone just goes off and does, does a deal on the side. Yeah. Like it's, it, th that has stagnated the progression of poker moving above where it is. Mm. I mentioned Dan before. Um, Dan the man. Dan the man. He said that um, he's spoken, well, he spoke a lot about the impact of you on his you had on his game but I know that you what, one thing that's been your edge is that you've been able to keep up to date with what's going on which has kept you in the game so I guess I'm curious how has he or what has he taught you has he shown you things that you would not have ordinarily seen uh, if you were not hanging out someone who is younger playing poker let me tell you something about Daniel <laughs> He's 10 times the poker player that I was at his age. Right. I mean, that's part of it. A lot of it has to do with the fact that he's grown up in an era where there's so much information. 
Yeah. Um, part of it is natural ability. Part of it is being around me and watching and analysing my play. Daniel's composure at the table is scary, bro. <laughs> when he's at the table, I'm actually in awe. <laughs> he's just so good. He's just... Yeah, he has no emotion on his face. The way he analyses the hand and the game makes you listen to what he has to say. And in that respect, having my son who's, you know, uh, more than 20 years my junior, to be able to discuss a hand and bounce off ideas with him and him point out mistakes that I've made mm. is bloody cool. <laughs> do you think Do you think there is a... Because we, we had people on here who've spoken about um, esports and gaming. Mm. And, you know, th these are things that are typically <clears throat> done sitting down. We know that in physical sports there's a cap on how well you can do, whether it be reaction times or ability to analyse. Do you think that's the case in poker? Do you think there's a peak period or a peak age that people succeed? No, not necessarily. I think the difference is that um, if someone, say, of my age, even though I'm, I'm pretty fit compared to a 25-year-old, I can no longer sit at a table for 12, 14 hours a day back on, you know, mm. day after day. I, it takes me a lot longer to recover. Yeah. When I was Dan's age, I could do it for a week. Bounce back the next day, no problem. That's where the physicality really comes in. Uh -huh. And with that comes a concentration, you know. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was his age, bring it on, dude. I can do whatever you wanted. Now I just, even when we just had the Aussie Minions, four days in I was like, wow, I need a break. I need to, you know, just can't do it anymore. Yeah. Go have a nap. A nap, whatever, you know. But uh, it does take a lot out of you. Yeah, I can imagine that. I can understand that. But then again, at that age, you're also sort of at a period where your learning curve is a lot higher. So hmm. it's going to be, you're going to get a lot more energy out of it. Yeah. Whereas it, someone at your status of the game, you can look at a game and have a better sense of what's going on maybe. Or I think so you just get to the point where, because poker is about grinding, is about like putting in, you might have to sit there for six hours to get that three minutes of glory. Yeah. You know, someone described poker once, and it's, it's been often said that uh, a poker session is made up um, of hours of boredom mixed in with seconds of fire. Yeah. Right, like it's, but that's exactly what happens. You, the, if you're gonna play properly, you're folding more often than not. And people don't realize, because I mean, I don't realize half the time I'm watching highlights. Correct. You yeah. don't, you don't yeah. see it. It's not every hand. <laughs> yeah, it's not every hand. That's, no. that's the mo that's, that is one thing that this digital age has done. It's given people a sense that uh, the game is full of dopamine hits when a lot of the times it isn't. Maybe that's why people stop playing as much as they should because they're just like, oh, this is too hard. You know, they don't have that sense of patience to actually play as much. I think it's, it's a product of the world we're living. Like, look mm. at the, everyone's concentration span today. I know, it's ridiculous. It's getting actually so bad. We have, um, we've got an agency. It's a creative full service agency. And in the last two years, video times that we create for people have gone from an average of 60 seconds Last year it went down to 30, and now a lot of the best videos are made around 15 to 6 seconds. TikTok. <laughs> but how's this, right? Yeah, TikTok. I don't trust TikTok. Although I do love that as a... I find it fascinating as a platform. There's a new competitor out called Byte, who's made by an American company, which I'm a bit more trusting of. But what I find interesting is that you've got these two spectrums. You've got these really short-form videos, but... You know, we'll do an episode like this. It's an hour, hour and a half, two hours sometimes, and people will listen to 90% of it. Like the average listenership is 90%. So 
I, I think there's a, there's a long-term market in long form, but in the immediate short-term period that we're in now, people are just investing all their time and money on these short-term dopamine hits. But they're not memorable. No. Like that all. interview you did with Joe Ingram will be memorable. That would be around for decades. Mm. So I think there's something to be said about that. I don't know where the world is going and whether we're going to actually, you know, curve back into meaningful stuff. <laughs> but at the moment it just seems like nothing's really meaningful. It's just passing time. Yeah. Well, maybe a bit of coronavirus may change that. <laughs> Let's hope it's not too much yeah. coronavirus. I fucking hope so. Um, I'm thinking about your future. I know you, you do every year just looking at the um, on the Hendon Mob. You do the World Series of Poker every year, Aussie Mians, World Poker Tour on the Gold Coast, a few events here and there. I saw you did one in Adelaide recently, charity poker events. What is What do the next few years look like for you? I know the kids, are they're all growing up, getting married, probably having kids in the next few years. Just found out my daughter was pregnant, actually. Really? Yeah. No shit. Congratulations. Thank you. That's exciting. What what do you what do the next few years look like for you? Less poker. It's it's slowly getting less and less. I only get excited by big tournaments. I don't really I'm not really interested in doing anything outside of big tournaments and if I do three three trips a year, like I have Aussie millions. I have the WPT in LA, which I'm going to next month. Mm-hmm. I have the World Series of Poker in June, July. Yeah. And then there's a WPT in December, the five diamond one that I won. Oh, okay. So back in Vegas. Yeah. So really there's no more there's no poker for me in Asia really. Mm. Um, yeah, I found that interesting. Dan said the same thing. It's 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 all about America still. It really is, and Europe, I mean, Europe has lots of poker, but Europe's so far away. Bro. Yeah, that's the that's what he said. But like also, twenty four hours to get. But there. I I was surprised that he said that. Like, why 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 is there not more opportunity in places like Macau? Aren't there? You know, we hear these stories of these billionaires who love to go there to lose. Like, it wouldn't mm. it be wouldn't it be interesting to play more cash games there, or is it is is the game really about tournaments? Because I know you've played cash games mm. quite a lot. Um, the cash game scene in Macau in the last three years has changed dramatically. All the big whales have been fished out and they've been taken into private games where we're not allowed in. Oh, really? So you're sitting there with a bunch of pros just, you know, and tournaments have been now banned in Macau. Really? Yeah. That's, that's, that's what's killed it. Yeah. Uh-huh. What do you do outside of your poker time? Because uh, that tells me that it's not too much time spent every year on poker. I just love being with my family, to be honest. Yeah? Just yeah. enjoying life. Yeah. Um, we have two restaurants in, in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Uh, one in Brunswick, East Brunswick, it's a Lebanese restaurant. Uh, and then we have a cafe in the city. What's the Lebanese restaurant called? Mama, Mama. Man- Manouche. Oh, yeah, I know Mama Manouche. Yeah. Yeah. So my eldest son runs that. Okay. But the cafe in the city. Um, Aliana Lulu and uh, like they run it but I'm kind of like on the periphery making sure everything's going okay Mm. Um, I have a lot of other business interests that you know I'm not hands-on but I'm consulting to yeah Uh, investing investing and advising yeah yeah I still I think since since I got married and, and until today my my number one priority has always been my family and my kids, like above everything else. And I, I, I manage my whole life around what I think is important for them. Mm. And that's, don't get me wrong, I'm happy doing it. So it's not like oh, I'm sacrificing. No, this is what I want to do. You know, it's like, you know, find something that you love doing, you never have to work again, right? Yeah. That's how I feel about, you know, my kids are my best mates, <laughs> you know. Um, In saying that, you know, when does Dan have to move out of home? I told him he can move out uh, any time after he's 25. <laughs> but if he's still at home by 28, he'll be getting the boot. Yeah. I got kicked out at 25. Not kicked out, but my parents sold the house and they're like, you know, it's probably time. We're yeah, going to get a smaller place. You know what? If, if I left it up to his mum, she'd never want him to leave. Yeah. But I think it's very important. It's very know, important. 16, 17 is probably 
a bit young, right? Let's, but, but 25 onwards, you know, I think it's important for you to grow as a person. Like, you know, as wogs, we were never allowed to move out of the house. Like, until you got married, you're, you're living here. But it's so detrimental yeah. for your growth as a human, mm. for your growth as a man. My oldest son, Anthony, moved out um, like nine months before he got married, and it was the best thing he ever did. Wow. And my wife was against it. I said, babe, he needs to go. He, you know, he, he actually came up, he said, Dad, I don't want to go from home to being married. Yeah. I want to actually experience, you know, and the best thing that ever did, you know? Yeah. You know? I think 25 is a good age because depending on what they do with their life, um, you know, like the average time at uni is three, four years. You've got time mm. to sort of build some savings and some life experience mm. up in a job and then you can sort of start to stand on your own two feet. But it, it it's it's very vo- – I think my parents sort of giving me the push was – was good because I had to find somewhere. Otherwise, I'd be sleeping on a couch because there wasn't a spare room until I found a place. And um, it gave me that push. I remember, like, looking for roommates or looking for an apartment with a room, and I just realised it was an absolute nightmare, so I just went and rented actually that place up on Spring Street and then rented the spare room out to someone else. It was good. It was very, very good. Um, I want to jump into some rapid-fire questions for you. Mm-hmm. Uh who would be your Franken poker player if you were to combine poker players to make one? Who would they be? <clears throat> Ivy and Negrano. Okay. Ivy's definitely Dan's favourite, I think. Um, best purchase under two hundred dollars. I have a lot of those. These sneakers, actually. What are these sneakers for the people who, the, the, who can't the, see it? The new Nike. Nike Air, Air right? Air, Air, whatever, yeah. They're, uh, like, and you know why they're so good? Why? Because idiots are paying 800 and 1200 bucks for... Yeezys. For Yeezys and Louis Vuittons and Gucci's and... And these look good and they're comfortable. They're, they're super comfortable. They look great. And, and they say, just do it. They just do it, dude. <laughs> Not just show it, just do it. Um, all right, last question for you. If you could have a billboard anywhere in Melbourne, where would it be, first of all? And then what would it say? Or what would it have on it? Oh, wow. <laughs> what a good question. <laughs> uh, um, where would it be? I like the corner of um, Punt Road... And Flinders Street. Yeah. Where that pub is. Mm-hmm. On top there. And what would it say? So that become, that's like Wellington, Wellington basically yeah. when you're getting to when it starts to become Bridge Road. Hoddle Street. It's on the corner of Bridge Road and yeah. Hoddle Street. Yeah. So it actually bends around now. Yeah. Yeah, they've changed a bit. It's one of those really cool billboards. Yeah. Um, it depends. What, what would it say regarding what subject? Whatever you want. Seven four past the sugar. Mm. Mm. Um, some, if I really just want to say something philosophical, it would be something around like seize the day. Yeah. Something like that where, you know, and as, as I get older I'm, and you're more conscious of time, Kobe just died in a helicopter yeah. crash two days ago. Dude, fucking live your life, enjoy it, seize, yeah. seize the moment. They did a study, uh, this this uh, nurse wrote a book a few years ago. Yeah. You know that book? Yeah. What do people regret the most? Yeah, not living their life. They the way, d- the one thing the they don't regret is, or wish they had more of is work. They wish they had more time with family. Hmm. I don't think I'd agree with that. I think if you've got family and health, that always comes first for me. Totally agree. Everything else after that is nice. Nope. Joe, thanks for coming in. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, Joseph Hashim Official on Insta. Mm-hmm. If they want to follow and get some nonsense from me from time to time. No, I actually put out some good stuff. I don't just put out nonsense. And uh, I'm on Twitter as well. But I don't do Facebook. I don't do any other stuff, so yeah, I'm easy to find. I've got a blue tick. I think um, Instagram's the place to be. Yeah, that's where I do most of my content. Yeah, 
and I cover topics all from family to business to poker. Yeah, everything. Yeah, and uh, I've got, I'm about to do a post in the next day or so about one of my favourite poker stories that was from last year's WSOP, okay. which I think people will really enjoy. Thanks for coming in. I'm so glad that Jerry did the intro and that Dan's come in, but um, thanks for joining. Pleasure. Thanks, Jordan. Cheers. Cheers, man. Thanks for listening in to this episode. If you like it, do leave us a written review on your podcast app as it helps us continue going on a weekly basis and we do love reading those reviews as well. Uh, If you want the show notes, you can find that below or with our previous guest at neural.com slash podcast. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash podcast. To watch the full video, search Uncommon Show on YouTube and to keep up to date with behind the scenes and clips for the show, you can find us at Uncommon underscore show on Instagram. But until next time, guys, thank you so much for listening.